Welcome to the first recap episode of the Kinsman Die podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, on a normal episode, I read my first book, Kinsman Die, chapter by chapter, one episode per week. Every five episodes, which is the sixth episode, which is this episode, I recap the prior episodes. And this is going to get complicated as time goes on. So if you've happened to begin with this particular episode, I recommend going back and listening to the first five and then coming to this one. So here's an overview of what I'll be doing in this episode. First, a quick word on the source text I used, and then a chapter-by-chapter plot recap combined with a discussion of the mythic elements in each of those chapters. I do expect this format to change a bit over time, so... Let me know, uh, shoot me an email, something like that, uh, so I know how this is working out for you guys as listeners. I primarily use the two main sources of Norse mythology, which are the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda, and that's spelled E-D-D-A. The Poetic Edda is the older of the two and doesn't have any attributed authors. Basically, Christian monks wrote down oral tales and or transcribed from older manuscripts that are now lost, more likely the latter than the former. The Prose Edda is a little more recent than the Poetic Edda. Snorri Sturluson of Iceland wrote the Prose Edda, and there is good evidence that he drew heavily upon the Poetic Edda as well as other Norse myths that are lost to us. There are other sources as well, Sexo Grammaticus being one of them, which I've, I've read but haven't gone too much into detail-wise, or pulled much from it uh, to influence my story, largely because it departs pretty substantially from what is contained in the poetic and prose eddas. Also, the Icelandic sagas are rich with Norse stories and are unique in themselves, and I've tried to incorporate some of that tradition into my books as well. Recap for Chapter 1. In Chapter 1, we met Frigg, who was rushing to be with her son Baldr. We also met Nana, Baldr's wife, and Eir, E-I-R, the city's chief healer. A comatose, nearly dead Balder was carried from his longhouse with Nana, grief-struck, standing by while Eir tended to Balder. The source of Balder's illness was mysterious. After a little bit, the sun rose and Balder revived. It wasn't clear why. Was it Eir's medicines, or was it the sun itself? Frigg also made a point of saying that she'd been in charge of the city, of running the city, Gladsheim, for 20 years by herself because her husband, Odin, had ridden off westward, but she had summoned him back soon after Baldur's bad dreams worsened. The chapter ends with the announcement that at long last, Odin has returned. All right, so here's all the myth stuff that I was trying to reference in the story, or in that chapter. Frigg is a Jotun. She's married to Odin. Together they have two kids, Baldur and Hodor. I gave them a daughter named Hermod, who, in the myths, was a a dude who rode to hell and back, hell being an individual, not a place, per se. In the opening lines of the book, Frigg uses a cloak to shapeshift into and out of a falcon form. That's her trademark, basically. It's one of the key motifs associated with Frigg in the myths. Freya gave her that cloak, and in another myth, Loki borrowed that same cloak to also become a falcon, which was a little weird, because Oki... Um, Loki could supposedly shapeshift on his own, so why would he need some type of 
uh, cloak to do that. There is also a possibility that Frigg and Freya were or are the same figure. They may have been uh, one goddess a long time ago, and then they got split uh, into two different goddesses as people moved around the Scandinavian region and different cults or different uh, uh, practices evolved in the worship of, of these various figures. Should note, of course, that Frigg is Jotun and Freya is ostensibly Vanir, and Vanir are a different class of gods and goddesses associated more with nature and fertility and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and there is a conflict that arises, I forget which uh, myth in, it happens in in particular, that's referenced by the Asir and the Vanir getting into a great big war with each other. And I'll go into that in more detail in a future episode. Um, but that's an, an interesting split between uh, the Frigg character and the Freya character. I kept them as two separate people because it suited my purposes for what I was trying to do narratively with the story. The whole deal with Baldur and being sick is super important. It comes directly from verse one of the Baldur drama, which just means Baldur's dreams in the Poetic Edda. And basically the gods gather in a place called Ithaval, which I have placed at the base of Yggdrasil, which is the world tree, to figure out why, quote, uh, and I'm quoting now, why baleful dreams to Baldur had come. And that quote is from the sacred texts, uh, Bellows translation. That line and that poem in particular was central to the linear timeline I developed for my narrative. And as most of you may be aware, uh, myths in general and Norse myths in particular are not particularly good with linear timelines. Things just kind of happen and the stories are somewhat independent of each other. I created one anyway because I needed it to hold together the, the narrative that I was going for, the story that I wanted to tell. And mostly it holds together, but there are some minor exceptions. And it actually helps explain when you arrange the myths in kind of this timeline, why certain characters change over time, why certain contradictory elements of their personalities or their behavior change. If you place certain events in a certain sequence, then it kind of tells a story by itself. At least that's how I, I, I viewed it. Air... E-I-R means helper in Old Norse. She was a healer in the myths, so I kept that role for her. She might also have been a Valkyrie. I use the word Valkyr, which means chooser of the slain, to signify battlefield healers. They choose who lives and who dies because they provide aid to warriors who've been injured or um, in, in the fighting. So they, basically my, my thought process was if, you have like this battlefield medic. They're going from one fallen warrior to another. They're triaging as they go. And some people they can save, some they can't. And the ones that they're able to save are chosen. Uh, they are chosen to live. And that's kind of an inversion of what Valkyrie has come to mean. And I did that on purpose. The Valkyrie are usually, usually associated with choosing the honorable, the victorious, the warriors who've distinguished themselves in battle. And in so doing, they become Einherar, which means those who fight alone, which is a really neat uh, 
term and one that I'll go into a little bit more in this episode, but definitely in future episodes. There's also a general interpretation that Valkyrie are women, uh, not so much shield maidens, so to speak, but women carrying spears with uh, winged helmets on their heads, riding white horses that may or may not have wings, and they fly up into the heavens and take the victorious dead to uh, Valhalla. I use the word Valhall because that is, to my understanding, the correct tense of the world of the word in Old Norse. It's the noun versus what I believe is uh, the genitive uh, case in, in, in the case of Valhalla. And I'll go into that a little bit more in a future episode. Gna, although I pronounce it Gna um, in, in the chapter, is a woman who runs in to announce Odin's return. Snorri defines her as Frigg's messenger, which is why she delivers the message in chapter one. Gladsame is mentioned as well. That simply means the home of joy, and I've placed that as where the Asir live. And the reason why I chose that particular word is because it recurs uh, periodically throughout uh, many of the of the myths. And Asgard, Osgard, is typically considered the home, the enclosure of the Asir, the Os, and Os just means gods. But it didn't fit with uh, some of the other uses of related words like Jotunheim and Utgard. So I tried to make it more consistent with Gladsheim being the home of the Asir, Jotunheim being the home of the Jotun, with Osgard being the enclosure of the gods. That's what guard means. It's like a paddock, of a fence, a ring around a place, with Utgard being that which is outside of the enclosure of the gods. And the way I've done that in the books is, we'll get into that in a, in a future episode. I also use the word Sol, which is Old Norse for sun. And it sounds like a, like Spanish, but I don't believe the words are related, but I, I'd have to, I don't have the etymology in my head at the moment. And interestingly, the Norse personified the sun as female. I've been tr- trying to figure out exactly why that is, And I have a theory which I'm keeping to myself until I can find the time and find the supporting evidence to kind of make a good case for for why I think it's female. And I should note, too, that the sun is female and the moon is male. And um, just kind of an interesting uh, difference in how they viewed those two heavenly bodies and what that quite means, like I said, I'm not quite sure, but it is super interesting. The recap for chapter two. Vidar is probably the character who fired my imagine the most from the start. First, I'd, I'd never heard of the guy before reading the source materials. And second, there were a couple lines that I thought were pretty awesome. Um, like this one from the Grimnismal, which is one of the poems in the Poetic Edda. It's line 17. Filled with growing trees and high-standing grasses is Vithi, Vidar's land. And I don't know why, there's just something about that line that I really like, and I try to invoke that image with my descriptions, uh, both in chapter two and in some of the other chapters that we'll, we'll get to sh- shortly. Snorri refers to Vidar as the silent god, which is just kind of cool. And Vidar is Odin's son by a Jotun woman named Gridr. G-R-I-D-R is how it's uh, usually spelled. 
and Vidar's name means the wide ruling one. And there's a lot more to Vidar, both uh, with respect to this story and his role in the myths, and how that has influenced both what I'm doing with Vidar and what I'm doing with Odin as well as the series evolves, but I'll leave that for uh, a future episode. With respect to plot, Vidar and his sergeant Garalon have led warriors to the town halls that has been destroyed by bad guys. And Garalon is just a, a name that I kind of pulled out of thin air, and I kind of like the character too. He seems pretty cool. They're not sure who exactly attacked and sacked Halls, but they were told it was the Jotun based on a message they received. And if it was the Jotun, then that would mean that a long-standing peace treaty had been broken. There was also a hint that there is something amiss with the Einharar. And like I mentioned, in Old Norse, that means those who fight alone. And there was another hint that Heimdall is a drunk. And we'll get to that. Not, I think, in this episode, but in a future one for sure. Vidar's horse is named Hrimfaxi, which means soot horse or rhyme horse. Rhyme, of course, being frost. And Hrimfaxi is the name of the horse that brings the night, which, again, awesome. And you Tolkien fans will remember Shadowfax, one of the coolest horses ever. And Tolkien knew Norse myths backwards, forwards, sideways, upside down. He even got a lot of the names for his dwarves from the Voluspa. And interestingly, dwarves is often the term used to, to describe the Alvar or the Svart Alvar, and usually the Svart Alvar, which simply means uh, the black elves, the dark elves. And I have a slightly different take on all that um, based on one of, uh, one of the other uh, Eddas, the po- uh, I'm sorry, one of the other poems in the Poetic Edda called the Alvisamal, which deals with uh, Thor outwitting a Svart Alvar, which is pretty awesome because often Thor is kind of portrayed as a, as a simpleton, but that's not how, I'd, uh, how I portray him. The recap for chapter three. In this chapter, we met Odin, who chatted awkwardly with his wife, Frigg, and was then interrupted by his drunk cousin Heimdall. There's a lot going on in this scene that's relevant to the plot, but there's also plenty of mythic references, so I think I'll just skip directly to those. For example, uh, Frigg says that Heimdall bested Loki in some foolishness about the torque that Freya wears. This is a reference to the Brzangaman, which is a beautiful, one-of-a-kind, possibly jeweled necklace, highly polished, burnished, uh, probably made out of gold, uh, that Freya owns, and how she got it is a, a story for another day. In one of the uh, in one of the sections of the Prosetta, Snorri says that Loki stole the necklace and Heimdall got it back, and they had a mighty duel in which they were shape shifted into seals, you know, the flipper kind. And more on that in a later episode. I also mention Ran as a swear uttered by Heimdall. Aegir is mentioned as well. Aegir and Ran are two ocean gods. Both have good and bad aspects, like the sea itself, but Aegir is usually seen as good while Ran is bad. And more on that later. 
Odin mentioned that his brothers traveled west and that he was trying to find them. Those brothers are Vili and Ve. And this was my attempt to not only include them, because I have fond memories in part of Walter Simonson's Thor series from, I don't know, a long time ago. And actually, that series is a lot of what's influenced uh, at least some aspects of the recent Thor movies. But with respect to these two guys and Odin's travels westward, the idea was to try to make the world feel bigger and give Odin some some place to explore into and to come back having found new knowledge or whatever, which is a key part of Odin's personality, that unquenchable thirst to know, to explore, to find out new things, to learn new things. And that's a, like I said, that's a key part of his character and a key part of his plot moving forward into the other books and in this book as well, obviously. Frigg mentions as well that her visions are returning. And that's based on a few references in the myths, one of which being uh, from the Locusena poem, which is in the Poetic Edda, and that's one of the best, in which Loki insults each of the gods in turn. It happens at this, at this big feast. And at one point, Freya says to Loki, the fate of all does Frigg know well. And this is one of the reasons why I kept Frigg and Freya as separate people, because it didn't make much sense to have Frigg talking about herself in the third person, although I think there's probably some examples of that uh, in the myths and obviously in, in literature in general. But from that line, I extrapolated, and like I said, there's evidence for this in some of the other myths, prophetic powers for Frigg, and that becomes a key part of the narrative, not only in this book, but in, in the future ones as well. As this is going on, Heimdall is like yelling and screaming, and he's hearing stuff, and he's banging his ears, and finally Odin walks up to him and says, I should be shouting, thief, thief. And this is a reference to multiple stanzas in the Havamal, which we'll get to over time because I'm reading them in, in the chapters, where Odin speaks unfavorable, unfavorably of people getting drunk. One example is verse 13, in which Odin says, Over beer the bird of forgetfulness broods and steals the minds of men. Note that Odin does not eat food. He only drinks wine, but not to excess, obviously. Otherwise, like Happy Gilmore, he'd have to kick his own ass. Recap for Chapter 4. In Chapter 4, we met Blind Hoder, son of Odin and Frigg, as he ate and was made young again by Yggdrasil's fruit. I didn't do much here myth-wise, except to narratively at least lay the groundwork for the youth-restoring power of Yggdrasil's fruit. I called it fruit because, based on my readings of some secondary sources, it wasn't clear that it was an apple, per se. It's typically, these fruits are typically referred to as the golden apples of youth or something like that. And I do kind of play on that image uh, as we move forward into some of the other chapters. Just because it's kind of a, it's convenient, people know it, and it's, it's a good way to, to describe it then, more specifically than just calling it generic fruit. Idun, I-D-U-N-N, who will meet, uh, she's never a, a point of view character, but she does appear, is the keeper of those apples. And there's at least two myths that I'm thinking of in which she figures pretty heavily. 
with respect to safeguarding the apples and then she herself being kidnapped and the apple stolen and, and that kind of thing. So the apples are uh, the fruit of Yggdrasil is super important as is Idun and her role in everything. And it plays a big part in the backstory of my books as well. Recap for chapter five. In this chapter, Loke Laufeson chills out with his family, his second family, Sigyn, Vali, and Narfi. All of these are important figures. Less so in this book, but definitely in the next two. It's clear in this chapter that something big is coming. Is, is coming excuse me. Jotunheim is mentioned, and I kind of explained what that word was, or what that word meant, but typically the word giant is used to as the translation for Jotun. And while that certainly makes some sense, I prefer the, the uh, and this is according to Rudolf Symek's uh, Dictionary of Norse Mythology, I believe it's called, the word means the devourers, which is way cooler and pivotal in how I've imagined the Jotun and how they play out over the course of the books. Also, everyone is, is a Jotun, at least with respect to the Jotun versus Asir type battle that's typically uh, referenced and is a major part of, of my stories as well as they are in the myths. Asir is more like it's a choice. There are multiple examples of Jotun who and Loki is among them. Scotty is another, and that ties back into the theft of the apples, both in the backstory for my books as well as the myths, who choose to become Asir or marry into the Asir quote-unquote tribe. Obviously, the Vanir, uh, the two most prominent of whom are Freyr and Freya, as well as the Alvar and the Svart Alvar, are not, they're not either Asir or Jotun, they're something else entirely. And that's never really explained, and I, there's probably a lot of that has been lost towards the reflection of uh, the mythic stories or some place in history that nobody knows anymore, where one group of people who believed one thing met another group of people that believed another thing, and there was a clash, and stuff was forgotten and changed and all that kind of thing. With respect, again, to the Jotun, they are all descended from Emir, the Herm hermaphroditic progenitor deity. Emir is killed by Odin and his brothers, and in the backstory for my books, I lend Odin a few more helping hands. Note that Odin and his children have a slightly different lineage because Odin is the son of Bur, or Bor, who is the son of Buri, and potentially a divine cow named Audhumbla. It's a little fuzzy and a little weird because Buri kind of appears and then he's licked free from ice by the cow and all of a sudden he has a son. Bur or Bor married Besla, who was a Jotun, and they had Odin along with Vili and Ve. Loki's mother is Laufe, which may mean something like foliage or leaves, and it could point to her being a tree goddess, but it's not clear. Loki's father is Faurbauti, and Loki is the only person in the myths, I believe, who takes the matronymic, the mother's name, and nobody really knows why. Farbauti means dangerous hitter, which is why I made him an abusive father, and maybe that's why Loki uses his mother's name. 
And as I mentioned, I put Jotunheim in Utgard, just as I put Gladsheim in Osgard, or Asgard, as Jeff Goldblum so memorably mocked Thor in the movie Thor Ragnarok. In this chapter, I also introduced the Jotun hand language, which is basically a sign language they created so they could speak without being overheard by Heimdall. Loki also referenced a former friend who took his children, and that former is friend is somebody I, I think I'll probably just leave alone for right now. And finally, Loki learns that Odin has returned, except that Loki uses the Jotun name for Odin, Yig, or Ig. Y-G-G, which means the terrible or terrifying walker. Note that Ig is part of Yggdrasil, which is the world tree, and there's some good evidence that Yggdrasil may not be a tree at all. It could be a gallows. It could be the tree upon which Odin hung himself. It could be the horse that Odin rides. It's really not clear. But either way, Loki, at this point, needs to change his britches. Well, folks, that was the first recap episode covering the basic plot and the mythic elements of the first five chapters of Kinsman Die. I hope you enjoyed it. Next episode, we'll be on to Chapter 6, which returns us to Vidar. As I've said, I'm a big believer in value for value, so I have several requests. Please leave a review on whatever podcast app or platform you use. They really help. Please share the podcast. That also helps a ton. And finally, please consider supporting my work by buying my books on Amazon or in some other way. Likes, follows, Patreon locals, a boost through the Lightning Bitcoin network, etc. And I'd enjoy hearing from you, particularly with respect to how this chapter, this episode was organized. Did you find it useful? Do you want more detail on one thing versus another? No matter what, email me at mattbishopwrites at gmail.com. So rather than read from the Havamal as I've been doing uh, in the regular chapters on these recap episodes, I'm going to read from the Vafrusnismal, which is the Ballad of Vathrudnir. And we have, he is a point of view character in my in my books, at least in the first one. And he's a badass and not well known. So I thought I'd give him a little bit of airtime here. And again, I'm reading from the Bellows translation, which is available on sacred texts. Verse one. Odin spake, counsel me, Frigg, for I long to fare and Vathrudnir fain would find. Fit wisdom old with the giant wise, myself I would seek to match. <laughs>